0: So today we are in, okay, it's not as exotic as San Diego or the kitchen of one of my attendings or Manhattan. We are in my home to record with our next Buddy Call episode with the, you heard it right, Amanda Redfern, who, if you've listened to our previous episodes, including coronal dystrophies, nystagmus, and others, has already been a host on this program. She is little did you know, going to be a neuro-ophthalmology fellow at the Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah. Spoiler alert. uh, They have to, (laughs) I think, she's, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amanda.
1: Thanks for having me back, Ben.
0: So today you're going to do the easiest thing to do for buddy call, which is neuro off on call That was a huge joke. I'm still terrified of any neuro case because they, in my opinion, they can be some of the most important things to get right. So besides panic, what is the first step, Amanda?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say that I appreciate how much you respect neuro op and maybe you should consider switching to neuro op. But that's sec-
0: that's not step one.
1: <laughs> that's not. <Don't> well, <laughs> you got step one already. Don't panic.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Step two, do a good chart review. I can emphasize how important this is, especially in neuro-op patients. They're often very, very complicated patients, and doing a good chart review can help you prepare and know what to ask and know what to look for, and it can also make the encounter a lot easier when they don't have to explain their entire history over the first 30 minutes of your consult. So as ophthalmologists, we're always really quick to look at the past ocular history and kind of like, maybe glance at the rest of the history, but I would urge you to just pause and take a good look at the past medical history because there are a lot of diseases that have ocular implications. Also, take a good look at the past surgical history that can give you clues for things to look for on exam. For example, if you had a history of a pituitary lesion, you'd be looking for something specific on your exam.
0: Yeah, something, which we might get to later.
1: <laughs> which we'll get to later. Also, histories of maybe a carotid endarterectomy might add something to your differential. So paying attention to the past surgical history is also important.
0: Something that can help with that is if you're in an, you know, electronic medical record. You know, we have Epic at Yale, but you know, and that's one of the more popular ones. But whatever one you have, often you can make a filter. So if you make a filter to look through all chart notes, for example, for operative notes, and you can quickly see what kind of operative, you know, procedures they've ever had. So you can quickly figure that out, especially if the patient doesn't know.
1: Which often I think the patient doesn't quite know exactly what happened, uh, the doc- especially if it's. Brain surgery. Yeah. You can edit that out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I might keep it. But that Sorry. is a true story. That is yeah, yeah.
1: So next, take a good look at the med list. We classically worry about things like amiodarone and ethanbutyl but you can also pay attention to chemotherapies and anticonvulsants or any new medications. And if you're not sure if something has any ocular side effects, look it up. Um, I use Hippocrates as a quick way to look up adverse effects. I don't know what you use, Ben.
0: Yeah, I usually just PubMed, you know, like if I don't know whether hydroxychloroquine has ocular side effects, I'll do hydroxychloroquine ophthalmic manifestations or Vigabatrin or, you know, there's a bunch of medications that you may be already familiar with but did not know they have ocular side effects, but it's important to know. Is there anything else in the history you'd like to look for?
1: I also pay attention to the social history, mostly if they have a history of poor lifestyle choices, so like a history of alcoholism or a lot of drug use, because that can cause certain issues with the eye. Specifically, I worry about toxic optic neuropathies. Also, if you have that kind of lifestyle, you might have a poor diet, which would lead to nutritional deficiencies, and in that way, you'd have a metabolic Uh, You could have a metabolic optic neuropathy as well.
0: So what about the exam, Amanda? Can you describe to us what a neuro-ophthalmology exam looks like?
1: I think we're going to explain that together.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not ready.
1: But my number one tip is don't cut corners because there's there's rhyme and reason to everything we do.
0: I see. So have a system. Where does your system start?
1: Always start with vision. It's really important to get someone's best corrected visual acuity. It's not always possible on call if for say they, for example, they leave their glasses at home. But to help with that, I always carry at least reading glasses with me. And then of course you have an occluder with pinholes. And when I check vision, I always check if they're of age, like a presbyopic age, or if they've had cataract surgery, I always check them with some correction. And then if they're less than 2025 or worse than 2025, I will pinhole them to see if I can get them better.
0: Right. And, you know, I think, you know, if you're just starting residency and you don't know how to have reading glasses, I think just getting a bunch for all the residents in your year is a good idea. You can get them bulk on Amazon. They're very cheap and can go into your call bag as well as a pinhole occluder. Those are also they're just pieces of plastic with holes in them. Easy to get.
1: And you can make one on your own in a pinch on call, because I'll say that ours have gone missing at different points of, in time during our call year, our first call year.
0: There's a gremlin that lives in Yale New Haven Hospital that wanders around and steals pinholes. That gremlin may be me. I have found them in my back. I'm sorry, okay, <laughs> if anyone in my class is oh listening. Oh my
1: gosh. I know, I'm
0: sorry. It was me. I was the gremlin.
1: You're the reason I bought my own occluder. No,
0: that's not- So what's the next thing you look for, Amanda?
1: You're (laughs) lucky I love
0: this subject so much. Yeah, what is that subject? Pupils. Pupils.
1: Because pupils are awesome. So I think the classic teaching is to look for if the pupils are pearl. Pupils are equal and reactive to light. That's what they teach you in medical school. But we go a little bit more in depth. The first thing I look at is whether they are equal. So I'll shine the muscle light kind of underneath uh, both eyes so they're both illuminated but not directly and i just look to see that they're both equal i also look to see if they're both round there are different reasons why they might not be round and i won't really go into those but you should pay attention to that as well because that will give you an idea of how much you're going to trust the, the efferent function when you're really depending on it later in the pupil exam. Next, I'll shine the light in one eye and then the other. Typically, I go to ro- from right to left as I do with all of my exams. So I'll shine the light in the right eye. I'm looking for if it reacts briskly or is it sluggish? And then as I move the light, away from the right eye and kind of just illuminate underneath it, I watch it redilate to see how long it takes for the pupil to dilate. And then lastly, once I have really assessed the efferent function on both pupils, I'll assess the, uh, I'll assess for a relative afferent pupillary defect or an RAPD. Ben, how would you do that?
0: So, so, so the stuff we talked about before, mainly pupil size, was about efferent function. So the brain sending signal to the eye. When we're talking about afferent function, we're talking about how much signal can the eye send to the brain. So we look for the relative constriction between eyes when the same light source is shined in those eyes. So the idea is you shine a light in one eye, and then when you bring your light to the other eye, and then it, um, it should constrict. Because you're swinging the light from one eye to the other, then you, when you bring the light back to the other eye, you constrict. So you should see this pattern. You take your light, you constrict, you constrict, you constrict, you constrict. Now, if instead of seeing that, or you know, really once how we do it is we don't, we don't swing the light. We immediately move from one eye to the other. So we basically what we're looking for is to see if the eye. Um, if the eye stays the same size, if it doesn't move, we're looking for a lack of movement. If there is a relative dilation, so you shine an eye light in one eye, it stays the same. You shine a light in the other eye, and it dilates slightly, or a lot, depending on the degree, then that means that that eye is not sending as much signal to the, um, to the pupillary pathway as the other eye. So hence you have a relative afferent pupillary defect. Now, a Couple things to note. This is relative. So you're comparing the construction of one eye to the other. Um, so, you know, if someone has an absolute afferent defect, but it's the same in both eyes, you will not pick it up using this test. A relative afferent pupillary defect is relative. So that means if one eye has a relative afferent pupillary defect, the other cannot. So you don't have, if, if you write RAPD in one eye, you don't write it in the other eye because it's, sh- don't write no RAPD in the other eye because it makes it look like you don't know what an RAPD is. So just say four to two for one and then four to two with a RAPD in the other eye. What if, I mean, I'm going to turn this one to you. What if one eye does not react? Let's say it's surgically dilated because they had, you know, a significant, like complicated cataract surgery. Can you test for an RAPD?
1: Why, indeed you can, Ben. So this is testing for an RAPD by reverse. And it works because of the consensual light reflex. Or because we have the consensual light reflex, we can use the other pupil to let us know whether or not there is an RAPD. So let's say that you have a surgical right pupil. When you're doing the swinging light test, you're gonna have one light kind of backlighting to, so that you can always see the shape of the left pupil. So you use some sort of dim backlighting, so you can always see the left pupil. Then with your other light, the light that you use for your normal uh, RAPD check, you're going to swing back and forth between the right and left pupil, or between the right and left eye. All the time, you're watching the reaction in the left or the normal uh, pupil. If it constricts as you swing it back and forth, there is no RAPD. However, if it were to constrict, then dilate, constrict, then dilate, whichever eye that you're holding the light over when you see that dilation is the eye that has the RAPD, and that would be the RAPD by reverse.
0: Right. So the problem in, in so the problem in RAPD is the eye that has the light shining on it at that time. Okay, what's next in the exam after pupils?
1: Confrontational visual fields, which is hopefully a skill you've had some practice with in medical school.
0: So how do you do it, just so um, the listeners are aware? Because I feel like there's a bunch of different ways it's taught, so I'd like to know how you do it, Amanda.
1: I like to do mine where both me and the patient are at the same eye level, so same level. And roughly two feet apart, maybe three feet apart. From there, I have them cover one eye. So in ophthalmology, we often go from right to left. I usually ask them to cover their left eye first. And while they do that, I close my right eye. So I'm mirroring them. And then I use my fingers to flash some number of fingers in each of the four quadrants. Usually I just... use one or two fingers because it gets really confusing to patients, especially when you're just flashing it to see three, four, or five. I recommend just flashing a number of fingers because if you uh, put, let's say a one up and hold it there, they're naturally gonna want to look at it. And the test doesn't really test your peripheral vision if they refixate on your finger, then you're just testing their central vision. So it's very important to One, make sure that you're maintaining some eye contact with them and watching where they're looking. So whether you ask them to look straight at your eye or at your nose as a fixation point, Um, either one really works, but you need to be watching their eye to make sure they're not cheating. And then two, flash the number quickly so that they're not tempted to cheat by looking straight at the finger that you're holding up.
0: And I agree with doing a confrontational visual field for every patient, but I think perhaps in medical school, it get the utility if it gets overemphasized there is a, a couple of good studies out there that show that finger fields by you know fields by count by finger counts or by using your hands at all is pretty insensitive you're not going to pick up a visual field defect until it's very dense so it's useful to pick up those dense except a lobe infarcts, for example which is why you should always do it but just because someone is has full fields by confrontation by no means means they have full actual visual fields
1: very good point if you want to get fancy, you can test uh, two quadrants at once and you're testing for extinction. So let's say you put up two fingers on one side and one finger on the other side. So that's a three total fingers, but they tell you they only see two, then you'd be concerned that they had extinguished that or had some form of a hemi-neglect syndrome.
0: So, Amanda, how do you assess color vision?
1: Well, we use the color plates, of course. Ishihara color plates is what we have in our call bags. But there are other types. I'm not going to go into as much depth about it because I know there was already a whole episode on color vision previously, and it was fantastic by Ben and Andrew. But I will say that when you are on call, color plates is super, super helpful. You aren't really looking for any Congenital dyschromatopsia, but you want to find an acquired dyschromatopsia. So it doesn't matter if they're getting control plate only because they've been colorblind their whole life. That doesn't really help you. But what does help you is let's say they have a unilateral vision loss and then the color plates are down in that eye, but not in the fellow eye. That would definitely indicate that there could be an optic nerve problem or possibly a cone problem. But I definitely have a higher suspicion for optic nerve issue when the there's unilateral dyschromatopsia. Of course if you have a bilateral problem and they're both decreased that's also helpful and you should take note of that and take that seriously as well especially if they're kind of in that weird mid-range where they're getting like half the plates. Another good note is to watch at how fast they're reading the color plates so sometimes it can be subtle. If you See that the patient is reading through the color plates really fast in one eye, but kind of struggles in the other eye, even if they get them all. That would be a good tip off. And you could either do a red desaturation test at that point, which might be a little bit more obvious, or just pay extra close attention on the, uh, on that RAPD check. Another thing that you can do when you're concerned about, uh, just subtle color vision changes is doing a red desaturation test ben how do you do your red desaturation test
0: so i take a red top if you have it you know your Tropicamide or any dilating drop bottle be if red. you
1: have it who doesn't go who doesn't have a red top on call
0: if you don't then the top of a coca-cola bottle you can buy yourself a diet okay diet uh, coca-cola and then you have a red cap
1: the diet's usually silver actually the regular is red. So
0: you'll buy a regular uh, diet. No, regular <laughs> diet. Coat. You'll buy a regular Coke <laughs> have a red top on it. You have them cover one eye and then say, okay. You, you, usually I start with the, if one eye is good, I have them look with just that eye and then I ask him, Okay. Let's call this 100% red. And they're like, okay, call 100% red. Then you have them switch eyes and you just ask them, okay, is this still 100% red or is it like 80% red or 50% red? Is there maybe some percentage of gray or orange? And say like, oh yeah, doc, it's like, I don't know, maybe 50% red. It's like a little more orange in this eye. And then that's how you can maybe detect a subtle color vision deficit or dyschromatopsia.
1: Another test that's really useful is doing the Amsler grid testing.
0: Amsler grid? I thought that was just for macular degeneration.
1: No, you didn't. You know better. But uh,
0: this is a show where we each <laughs> have our own part to play in this world, of Amanda Redford.
1: So a lot of times when you're doing a neuropath exam, you're trying to figure out where the issue is. And doing an Amsler grid can help you figure out if there is a maculopathy. So when you have the patient look at the Amsler grid... I typically ask them to look one eye at a time at the center of the grid where the dot is and say look at all the look at the center do all the lines seem straight or do some of them seem wavy if there are areas that are wavy we call them metamorphopsias next I'll ask them still looking at the center do all the boxes seem to be there or do some of the boxes seem to be missing those areas where they're missing would be called a scotoma and if they do report something positive, I always have them point to where it is. That will actually help you guide you in your exam later when the patient is dilated. So, next, you should be checking for extraocular movement. Oh, there's efferent function too. There's yeah.
0: other things that happen besides looking.
1: Fortunately, this was partially covered on Pete's call, so I won't hammer it in quite as much. But You should be testing extraocular movements on every patient. So I generally have them follow my finger in a large giant circle so I can see their eyes in every single position. But in terms of grading, I'm really just grading abduction, adduction, superduction, and infraduction. Everything in of seems to be graded on a scale from 0 to 4. In this case, 0 to minus 4 because it's a deficit, so it would be a minus.
0: What does minus 4 mean?
1: So minus four means that the eye just doesn't move at all in that given direction.
0: Mm, and zero means?
1: That it is able to move completely all the way in that direction.
0: Great. So then minus one must mean that there's like some impairment, but not that much.
1: Yeah. So I kind of break it down to fourths. So a minus two would be, it can only get 50% of the way out there. Uh, minus one, like you pointed out, would be a smaller defect. So it gets 75% out of the way Uh sorry, it gets 75% into the direction it wants to go. For example, if you're looking at abduction, that might be that you're able to abduct or abduct, look laterally, but you don't quite bury your sclera. Looking at whether the sclera is buried when they look in side, any side direction is a good way of kind of gauging how much the eye is turning and whether it's turning fully or not quite. Other things you can watch out for when you're doing these extraocular movement tests is looking for nystagmus. Uh, there was a podcast on nystagmus, so...
0: Yeah, there was two of them. Oh. We should listen to both. Yeah, we split into two because there's a lot to talk about with nystagmus.
1: So I will uh, leave that one be for now. It would be good practice if you notice some extraocular movement deficit to go ahead and uh, evaluate the other cranial nerves just to make sure there aren't other cranial neuropathies.
0: Now, we've, I think that is most of what you look for when you're seeing what a patient can do. Is there anything neuro-ophthalmologists in particular want to look for on the exam, like look at directly?
1: Are you referring to the optic nerve?
0: I was actually referring to the corneal nerves, but fine. We can talk to them about the optic nerve. Continue. The optic
1: nerve is the holy grail of the eye.
0: What do you look for at the optic nerve?
1: (laughs) So we typically look for a nerve, a healthy nerve, to be sharp, pink, and flat. That is our goal. But what does that really mean? So the sharpness, we're referring to the borders. If they're sharp, if the borders are sharp, that's a very good sign. But if they're blurred, that's usually because there's disc edema. Um, We can discuss pseudopapilledema in a different podcast. But for the purposes of this... If you see blurred margins, you're worried about disc edema. There is a formal grading system for optic disc edema, but it's best to start by just describing what you see. So how much of the margin is blurred? Is it 180? Is it 360? And then from there, you can look at the vessels and whether there's any vessel obscuration. As the nerve starts to swell, then vessels will first become obscured at the margins. And then as it swells more, then even on the disc itself, you'll start to have obscuration of the blood vessels. And then by the time you get to, like, the worst stage of disc edema, it you can hardly recognize it's a nerve.
0: So you said sharp, then you said pink. What do you mean by
1: pink? You know, I will admit when I first started... I thought people were crazy when they kept calling it pink because I thought it was more of a kind of like soft orange, orange glow. Yeah, like but everybody calls it pink. so And now in my head, it is pink. Yeah. you know. I don't know if it's been conditioned into me or what. I'm
0: pretty sure we've been conditioned.
1: <laughs> but basically, what you're looking for is whether there is pallor. So pallor represents some optic nerve atrophy. And this takes time to develop. So some insult to the optic nerve might have happened, and it takes about four to six weeks to develop pallor from that incident. Pallor can be seen in many optic neuropathies. Uh, If you had a history of optic neuritis, or compressive lesions, or history of ischemic optic neuropathy, can go on forever. You can also see sectoral pallor. So you might see that in a metabolic or toxic optic neuropathy. So paying attention to if the disc is pink, if it's not, how much of it is pale? Is it just part of it? Which part of it is it temporal? Is it a bow tie pattern, or is all of it pale? Right. And lastly, flat.
0: Oh, can I make a couple comments on color? Yeah. Go so, um, so just like a couple thoughts on color, especially if you're just starting. Uh, just know it's natural for the temporal border of, um, an optic disc to look a little bit more pale than nasal part. This nasal part will look more pink. So, you know, if you're have a suspicion for pallor, you can say like, you know, maybe question temporal pallor, but know that, you know, definitely spend a lot of time in your early clinics looking at normal optic nerves and you'll see what I'm talking about. For the most part, the temporal margin is a little bit more pale than the, the nasal margin.
1: Also, if someone had cataract surgery and they're pseudophagic, they can get something called pseudophagic pallor. So basically, your, your personal visual pathway to looking at their nerve is a lot more clear and yeah. less tinted, and therefore, uh, the nerve appears brighter and in that sense, it might seem a little bit more pale to you compared to all the commonly cataractous eyes that you see.
0: Right. So we, you know, we look a lot at cupped nerves, you know, in glaucoma clinic. The differential for a cupped nerve is very broad. It includes things like physiologic cupping, glaucoma, and then a variety of different optic neuropathies. The key thing to remember to help differentiate between like what's dangerous and what's not physiologic cupping and glaucoma will leave a pink neuroretinal rim, i.e. the disc will remain pink whereas all the other stuff should induce some amount of pallor. So if someone is cupping and you're not sure they have glaucoma or you think this doesn't make sense of them having glaucoma, take a careful look at that neuroretinal rim and that's how you can differentiate between um, physiologic cupping slash glaucoma and some kind of other perhaps dangerous optic neuropathy. And that's all we have for this week. Um, if you uh, like what you heard, yeah. If you thank you, if you like what you heard, then give us a rating and review on iTunes. It's really helpful. This is probably going to be one of, almost the last episode in our buddy call series. Uh, I'd like to give a huge thank you again to the doctor Amanda Redfern. We're looking to do more of these kind of mini series that address specific needs of residents at particular times of the year or throughout the year. So um, you know, if you like these mini series, give us a shout. Thanks again. Thank you again, Amanda. Take care, bye-bye.
1: Thanks for having me. It could be related to some other trauma of the eye, but let's go with one pupil is.
0: (laughs) We should probably check that person's pupil. There's a number of emergency vehicles currently passing this home.
1: Maybe they're coming from Watson. He looks pretty out of it. Yeah. Pupils my, are equal, though.
0: Yeah. My my, my wonderful cat has also joined us for this podcast. He's currently laying adjacent to the microphone. That's so going to be
1: like a 9 millimeter dilation, at least. Oh,
0: yeah. He is wigged out right now. I'm actually unsure of the reason why his sympathetic drive is so significant, but he is helping us in the podcast.
1: He's definitely not flying.
0: No. So yeah. He's... uh.
1: So is he fighting?